Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Uh, you. I don't know uh, that one. Thank God. Thanks for, thanks for the episode soundbite. Count yourself lucky. All right, let's see. Let's let's get this thing cracking. All right, welcome back to Author News Weekly. I'm Ari McGee, and before we get started this week, let me introduce you to our panel. And first and foremost, Mr. Jim Heskett is back, Hello. back with us this week. He extricated himself from the aliens from American Airlines flight. Uh, he would know what we were talking about last week, but he wasn't here. So, Jim, I'm glad that you got away from the little green Martians and everything worked out for you. Um, yeah, I'm happy to be back on U.S. soil, I guess. It's fair. It's fair. It, it, anything to get out of that flying saucer, man. I'm happy for you, man. It's good to see you. Uh, next, I can't talk about it. Glad to be here. Non-disclosure agreement. Uh, next, we have someone who didn't have to fly with the aliens and was here. So thank you for your steadfast support, Pippa Warner. Hello. I don't think we should really blame Jim for getting, you know, abducted. I think we should call, I'll call him James now, because that was very, very fancy. I like that. Sorry, just went fancy there. <laughs> the aliens made me fancy. <laughs> they did. They did. And uh, last but not least, uh, rocking the pimpest hat this side of Oahu, uh, Mr. Nick Dacker. Uh, probe free as always, ready to ready to go. boy. Atta boy. <laughs> Well, okay, so listen, you know, sometimes I, I, I have things that rattle around in my head, and this week I've had one that's been rattling back and forth, and uh, I don't know if this is going to set off a little bit of a, of a carpet bomb in our uh, our little community here, uh, but how do you pronounce it? GIF or JIF? Oh, my God. It's that's GIF. Amazing. Sometimes the creators are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Pippa. <laughs> Yeah, man, I, moving on. That's yeah. On. <laughs> well, what the heck, man? I thought that at least someone would be like, "No, I'm a very, very artsy fartsy," and it's GIF. GIF. GIF is a peanut butter, and GIF is a graphic interchange format. Mm, fair, fair. It's not a graphics interchange it's not format. A, it's not a graphics file. That's right. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Although from now on, I think maybe I will pronounce it GIF just to be a crap stir. So, with with all that out of the way, let's move on to the news. Oh, that's me. Do I do that every week? I feel like I do that every week. Yes. I even like did a oh, little like heads up, heads up thing. It doesn't right. even autoplay anymore. We will still get better at that. Don't worry. I don't think we will. Or we won't. It's part of our charm. Spoiler alert. Yeah, it's part of our charm. All right, let's go with the first story. If I couldn't stir anything up with the mm. GIF versus GIF thing, maybe I can stir something up with this one. Uh, Mr. Mr. Game of Thrones himself, George R.R. Martin, I think is great. I, I believe so. George R.R. Martin. I mean, I've always pronounced it Georgie, but 
you know, I'm not the best at reading. So, uh, George R. R. Martin is uh, bringing something new to HBO. And I think everyone's excited about that. They think maybe we're going to have some goodness out of George uh, Georgi. Uh, but the problem is he's bringing a Roger Zelazny fantasy novel to HBO. Nothing mm. Game of Thrones related. Uh, he Game is. Yes, he's going to James. James Sorry, of Thrones. I'm going to do this all. <laughs> uh, he's serving as the executive producer of Roadmarks. It's an adaptation of a Zelazny novel about a road that travels through time. And uh, so that's great. You know, more more content for the television. That's good. But I think that most uh, fans are kind of wondering where is the winds of winter, George? And why are you working on other things besides the winds of winter? What do you guys, what do you guys think about? Well, before we get into that, what do you guys think about uh, Game of Thrones? How do you how do you how do you think it uh it kind of ended up on the television? Um, um let's go let's go uh you know what I was gonna say Nick, but Pippa's got this like this mm-hmm. like I'm ready to tear something up look on her face. So let's got go with her face. first. What do you think about Game of Thrones, Pippa? It it got sloppy. It went all of the places I expected it to go, but it was just unconscionably sloppy given the budget it had. Mm. It's the same way if we're gonna be shit stirring. It's the same mm. way I feel about the Last Jedi. <laughs> Ooh, I think Jim will jump in and fight you on that one. <laughs> yes, I love what they did with Luke. I just hate the casino subplot. It was sloppy. <laughs> mm, okay, S- slavery bad though, Pippa. We have to make sure that you know that slavery is bad. So they could have just asked. <laughs> I could have confirmed that I knew that. <laughs> That's fair. So, okay. All jokes, all jokes aside though, I think that if you have read all the books, you know, and I've read all the books, I'm kind of hanging out in that space where, uh, the television show ending disappointed me the way that they handled it all. And that deep down inside, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, George Martin will make a triumphant, uh, 180 with the way that he presents things in in the winds of winter, which we've been waiting for for over a decade, I think, at this point. Um, which brings me to my question. Now, I, I've seen a lot of back and forth between people in comments and in in videos and things like that. As a reader, do you believe that he owes the fans to finish this book? I want to ask you as a reader before I ask you as an author. So what do you guys think? Jim, do you think he owes anyone finishing this book or no? Well, uh, as answering as a reader, uh, I would say, hell yeah, he owes, <laughs> he <laughs> owes the fans. But as an author, I could say, um, I know what it's like to have fans angry at me for being late on a book. I know what it's like to have fans angry at me for writing a book other than the book they wanted me to write. I do not know what it's like to be writing probably the most anticipated book in recent history. You know, and I don't know what it's like to be trying to sit down and bust out the first draft of one of the most anticipated books of all time. There's probably quite a lot of pressure uh, with that. So I feel for George and I'm, you know, about this, uh, this adapting this other uh, novel to HBO, you know, I'm just glad we're getting George R. R. Martin content. It'll probably be, better than winds of winter 
<laughs> so, <laughs> honestly, the last, the first three books in the series were phenomenal. The last two books were blast. So I didn't have a whole lot of hope for Winds of Winter anyway. And then now that we know how it ends from the TV show, that just practically seems no point. So George should just do whatever he wants. He's made enough money. He's all right. Yeah. I, man, I, I feel like, um, I feel like he owes it to readers. And I think as an author, I think he owes it to us. Um, because I, I, early on the commitment was I'm going to write this series. It's going to be a finite closed, you know, world thing. And, and there's, so there's going to be a beginning and an end. And, and I think he's not written the end for us yet. Um, it'd be different if he was like, Hey, I'm going to launch a new universe called the game of Thrones or universe or, uh, whatever it's called, you know? Um, and, uh, and I'm going to, I'm just, it's going to be this ongoing thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there's no like wheel of time almost. There's no commitment that it's going to wrap up at some point. It's just more and more books in the series. Um, but I think the expect, at least as far as I know, um, the expectation was that this was going to be the last book, right? Like this was always going to be the end. Mm-hmm. Yes. No. It's two no, more. There's, there's two oh more. My God. Oh, no, yeah. seven, seven books. So oh it's gonna God. be. It was gonna be winds of winter, and then uh, a dream of spring. Right. Yeah. So. Okay. So your wheel yeah. of time comparison was apt. It was it because I don't read. I don't really read. I've never read the wheel of time stuff. I, uh, that, I thought it was like this was ongoing. Signed for a trilogy. Gotcha. Okay. Uh huh. So George R. <laughs> R. Martin um, was that supposed to be seven books all along? From the beginning, or I, mean, I think I it's it was, right? ramped up. Actually, uh, no. Actually, it was oh. going to be shorter. Yeah, it was going to be a trilogy. Then it was four or five, and then it kept expanding. I think. And then he spent half yeah. a book with Brienne of Tarth, so he decided he had to <laughs> make another book to make up for things. You know, I just I guess my bottom line is that I, I feel like this is a little different than like the stuff that that I write in, in the Harvey Bennett universe. Um, I try to make them enjoyable as standalone, even though, you know, I certainly am not going to close off everything at the end of the book and say, this is the end of the whole series. There's not going to be like a pretty substantial cliffhanger, like who sits on the throne, um, that I, that I haven't answered yet. So I do think he owes it to us to finish the story that he started. Um, because if, if he doesn't, this is what I'm saying. It's not like this, there's any stakes for him. Yeah. He's got plenty of money. He doesn't have to do it personally. I think he's going to probably die before he finishes it uh, with the way things are going. But um, I just, what I really don't want to see is somebody else coming in and trying to finish it. We've already had that in the, in the TV world. Um, now, arguably literally monkeys in a room could have done a better job than D and D in my personal opinion, but mm. um, nobody asked me my personal opinion um, before they made it. So I didn't get to share that with them. That was very mm. rude. <laughs> I know. Well, they, they, they got what they got their comeuppance um, with their, uh, with their star Wars movie. I'm making Indeed. a funny face for anybody who can't see me because they didn't do a Star Wars movie. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, that's good to know. That's good to know that you guys uh, you guys hope that you know. I, personally, I just hope that you know. I'd love to see it, but I, I'm not holding out hope. So hopefully, Honestly, whoever. I think I actually started to lose hope in it when Lady Stoneheart didn't come in in the show, and I was like, "Oh, you just built a book full of red herrings." Mm. I could do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things that just keep going, and and it, and then he, you know, there was a lot of introducing new characters, and I'm just like, wow, dude, we're we're gonna open up these doors with all these, yeah, whatever, whatever. All right, well, you know, hey, 
fingers crossed, man. If not, if someone takes it over, maybe it'll be uh, maybe it'll be someone who uh, wants to wants to do the the work justice. So let's uh, let's get off of George's back here because I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to hang out on there for a while. Okay, story number two. Let's talk about book trailers. Now, uh, I've been seeing a lot of info about book trailers, people putting them out there, some companies saying that they have, uh, you know, tools to help make a book trailer. Uh, So for anybody that doesn't know what a book trailer is, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about that and then see what you guys think about them. Are they something that works or are they just, uh, are they just fluff? Are they just uh, making us feel good about ourselves? Uh, What do you think, Jim? What do you think about book trailers? Uh, What, what are they in your opinion? What makes a book trailer? Uh, what makes a book trailer is that yeah. it's like a movie trailer, except it's for a book. What? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. You can have pictures, Jim. You can quote me on that in the show notes if you want, <laughs> so that it's people can copy and paste it later. Mm. But um, I, I don't know. I've never seen any data that book trailers sell or don't sell books. Um, I mean, I think that they're probably fun to to, to have after you pay for it. It's the kind of thing that you pay for. And then you look and you go, wow, this is cool that I have it. Um, I mean, Nick, <laughs> Nick and I kind of made one. We, well, we made, we made oh, an award worthy short film is what we made. Uh, that we, was, we made a short film. That was, mm. that was, it was kind of like a book trailer. Cause it did sort of lead. It was a scene <laughs> from the book. Um, and we'll put that in the show notes. If oh, you we want absolutely to be, will. If you want to be scarred for life, more scarred than you were from uh, Kevin to Nick, you can check out their award-winning short. Oh, uh, please continue. I, s- <laughs> I said it was award-worthy. I never said it was award-winning. Fair. Definitely implied that it won some awards. We used a little papyrus font. <laughs> but we never actually said, never made any claims. Uh, so Fair. do book trailers work? Um, I don't know. I've I've never seen any numbers on it. It's probably there's probably never been a widespread study on do book trailers actually help to sell books. Mm. Mm. So it's not something you'd pay for or no? Probably not. No, I th- I can think of better ways to spend marketing money than uh, on a on a YouTube video. Mm. Right on, right on. What do you think uh, there, nickel, nickel, nickelback, nickel? <clears throat> nah, I've been called worse. Um, <laughs> Speaking of Nickelback, uh, Jim and I are in a in a cover band, an indie band called Paperback. Um, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I, I fully agree with Jim. I would even go further and say I almost guarantee they don't work for selling books. Um, I actually feel book trailers uh, they're, they're a vanity play for sure. You know, there's something you do if you've got some money to blow and, and you want to uh, hold on to something cool that's that's you know about your book. But yeah, they're not going to do a damn thing for sales. Um, but here's the deal. I, here's the, here's the, the, the trepidation for it as, as an author, um, just like a book cover. And I'm going to say something that's probably going to be a little conspiratorial here, but, um, just like your book cover, your book trailer is only going to prevent sales. So your book cover is not going to sell your book. Your book cover needs to be good enough to compete in the pool of all the other good enough book covers. The really, really exceptional book covers are not selling the book for them. They're just showing up in the same pool of really good designed book covers. What that means is if somebody goes to your Amazon page, I don't know of a single reader, myself included, who's going to buy a book based on the book cover alone. If it's another book in a series that I've read and I like, yeah, I'll buy it, but it's not because of the book cover. 
um, if if the description is good, I've never heard of the author, but the plot seems in, in, in engaging and enticing, then I'll buy it. But it's not because of the book cover. But if I go to a author page and the book cover is terrible, there's a chance I might not buy the book because it, it just it says the quality might be too low, right? And so obviously there's some subjectivity with good and bad book covers and things like that. But my point is the same with with trailers. <laughs> the best you're going to do is have something cool that you can show off and people might say, great, that's a cool book trailer. But at worst, if it's poorly designed and it's really cheesy, which a lot of them are that I've seen, you're going to turn people off and they're going to say, I actually don't think I want to read that book because I didn't know it was about like whatever is in the book trailer, you know? Um, so that's my point, right? Like it, it, we all think that having good book covers is going to help sell our books. It's really not. It's just going to help our books be in the pool of competition, um, which at then, then we need to do something over and above all the other ones in order to be seen and whatever. So does that, I hope that makes sense, but I, I that's my opinion on it. I, I feel like pretty strongly though, that book trailers are kind of the same thing. Like I wouldn't spend money on them because there's no way they're going to actually make you more money. They're just going to have the risk of turning people off to your book. I think that's pretty, uh, I think that's pretty valid. I think that's pretty valid. Pippa, Pippa, what do you say to that? I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I do like that take. It's kind of the, the cover letter when sending in a job application, it's just more chances to screw up. Um, Mm -hmm. that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm realizing now as we talk about book trailers that I had filed those in my head in the same category as like making your own Yahoo page or like really pimping out your MySpace page and like adding a cool song. And you're like, I don't know, it's kind of a vanity project and it's like another era of indie writing. I feel like when you mentioned the book trailers, I was like, didn't we all stop doing that? I thought we were done with that. So what we, you're trying to get into is the, uh, the branding part of it, right? Like it's, it's a branding thing. So sure, if you've got a good, well-designed book trailer that actually does a good job representing what your book is about, and again, subjectivity aside, um, if it's doing those things and checking the boxes, I don't think it's going to generate sales directly. I think it will, however, help be part of, of this overall brand package that you as a, as a writer are. Um, and, and I'm saying all that like, sort of tongue in cheek because I literally just made a book trailer for my book, but here's the deal. I did it myself cause I know how. Um, so I didn't spend any money doing it like at all. And so <clears throat> for me, it was just something fun to do at night when I had some extra time. Um, so I didn't lose anything by doing it. And I don't think, and again, it's just my opinion. I don't think that it's in the, the super cheesy category that's going to turn people off from the Enigma strain. Um, and I can link to it and all that, but the whole point of that was to upload to a YouTube channel and become part of this brand. Um, I don't think, I don't ever expect anybody to discover that and go, I have to read that book. I don't think that's going to happen. The play is put these book trailers up on some channel like that, like, just like you said, and have that YouTube channel available for the reader who's already invested in my stuff and then see it and go, wow, this is okay. This is cool. This, you know, kind of confirms or whatever, um, how I feel about this author. Same so reason I, I do then, funnier videos, you know, because it's more of me as a person behind the scenes rather than all about my books, you know, it's all brand new. Okay. So not like act, hired actors or Oh that. God, no. Okay. So we're not no, talking like no. those kinds of book trailers. No, I was seeing I'll, those I'll back in the day. Too, like people would be hiring yeah. people and. No. And people, I know people who dropped like, you know, 15 grand on these things and it's like. I just, I feel for you because I don't think that's good. If you have the money to, to blow, it's your money. Do whatever you want. You know, go buy a yacht, whatever. But um, it, that's, you know, that's the yacht of the, of, the, of the book world. Like no one's looking at my yacht going, 
I'm going to buy his books because he's got a cool yacht. Like that's, that's a book trailer, right? No one's going to buy my books because of that. I don't know. You guys are all laughing at me, so I'll shut up. <laughs> no, you just, you know, spend, buy a book trailer or a yacht. Either way. <laughs> Either yeah. one. I mean, aren't yachts $15,000? Is that kind of about the right Life price? Life is full of tough choices. <laughs> yeah, where I'm from, they are, my friend. Where I'm from. I just man. feel like if you've got book trailer money that's in the $15,000 range, you probably have yacht money laying around somewhere, too, because that's the only possible way I can imagine wanting to spend that much in a book trailer. And that's just my opinion. That's right. Balling in my veins. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. I agree with all three of you in this instance. So we will move on to story number three. Now, this is regarding some audiobook thefts that have been uh, purported to be going around. Um, I think, you know, there's a deeper, deeper story here about how to protect your IP and things like that. But let me get you know, let me get to it real quick. This came uh, to us from the 20 books to 50K Facebook group. Uh, the head guy over there, Craig Martell, uh, made a post. And the basic gist of the post was that a book that Podium Publishing, uh, who was an audiobook publisher, holds the rights to was put up on Audible by an unknown third party. And I'm reading this verbatim, by the way. So, um Quotation marks, all rights reserved uh, to Craig Martell here. Um, that Podium Publishing holds the rights to was put up on Audible by an unknown third party without the author's approval or knowledge. Uh, it was fully recorded and put through ACX. And the first thing the author knew, he was seeing it on their ebook listing as an available audio edition uh, with a jury rigged audio cover, which was basically a cover that copied straight from the ebook. So um, what do you guys, uh, what do you guys think about this? That's kind of a dastardly play for someone to, to do. Uh, I've never seen anything. So like somebody that grabbed before. a book um, and recorded an audio book for it. And yeah. They the claimed it on audible. The gist? Yeah. And linked oh, wow. the books and there was no huh. mechanism in place to stop that from happening. A few people have mentioned, I've seen on author groups that that happened to their books and they're now in this like back and forth with Amazon about, but that wasn't me. So I immediately went over to Audible to see if anyone had done that with my books and I am not popular enough for <laughs> someone to have done that with my books. So <laughs> mixed blessings, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like a pretty easy copyright claim, right? Like Amazon kind of has prided themselves on, on, ripping stuff down that's in i don't think they do it well it seems like but um i i think that would be a pretty easy copyright argument to make right that they don't have why are you who are you paying this audio or paying money to because it's not the person who holds the copyright for that yeah but yeah yeah i mean when they when you do when you publish something on amazon and they suspect that there's it's the wrong name they ask you for the paperwork that establishes your rights you would think that would be fairly easy to make them request for an audiobook, or just yeah. ping the publishing account that that book is published under and be like, Hey, so. <laughs> so as, as far as we know, ACX does not accept AI voices still, right? They only accept human voice stuff. Right. So here's the thing I don't understand is that this is a huge upfront investment from some scam artist to actually produce an entire audiobook. So I can't imagine that this really happens all that much, right? Because somebody got this book and then produced an entire audiobook. So you either spent a whole lot of time or paid somebody money to record it. 
So that kind of upfront investment in a scam seems really unusual, right? And I, I mean, I can't imagine this happens often. I wonder if there's a set of ways that people are getting around the no AI voices thing. Like they record an hour of it or they, you know, and then it switches to AI or they run the AI voice through some filters that then confuse right. the, um, because it, yeah, I would think the same thing. No one would want to be doing this as an investment when they knew someone might come after them. So how? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's pretty weird. Um, you know, selling audiobooks is hard, uh, on the up and up, let alone, uh, squatting on someone's book. So it seems like a strange risk to take. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're concerned about that, um, one of the moderators, uh, in the 20 books group named, uh, Annalise Rennie, she wrote up a, a really interesting step-by-step plan to go to your, your ACX page or make an ACX page, claim your books to make sure that it doesn't happen to you. I think we can probably link to that. Uh, it's pretty long, so I don't want to get into trying to go through all of it. But, you know, you claim your books on ACX and, you know, ostensibly this can't happen to you. So uh, if this is something that you are concerned about, you can head over there. You can follow the the, the steps that uh, Annalise put together. And, uh, uh, you know, thank you to her for that. And if that's something that's important to you, you should definitely check it out. What do you guys uh, have to say? Anything else on this before we move along? This weirdness, weird situation? Don't know. Yeah. Oh, not here, no. Weird situation, right on. All right. So we're going to move on to story number four. Now, this is... This is weird, man. It's a little out there, but it caught my eye a little while back, and I wanted to kind of talk to you guys about it. Um, let me let me get the gist of it, right? So in the website called The Paris Review, they found a story about a young kid in the 60s, 1963. Uh, some high school student named Bruce McAllister sent a question uh, to 150 well-known authors uh, of literary, commercial, and, and science fiction, um, I guess this kid had just published his first story uh, in If Magazine, and it was in Simon & Schuster's roundup of the best science fiction of the year. So he was feeling his Wheaties and arguing with his English teacher uh, to prove how right he was. And so he sent all of these authors four questions, and they were basically this. Uh, did they consciously plant symbols in their work? Uh, who noticed symbols appearing from their subconscious and who saw them arrive in their text uh, without knowing it? And uh, when this happened or if this happened, did the author's mind? And what I thought was really interesting was, uh, you know, the uh, gall of this high school kid to email some of the, the, the biggest authors of the time, uh, Jack Kerouac and uh, Ayn Rand and Ralph Ellison and Ray Bradbury, John Updike and Norman Mailer. And so they all got back to him about symbolism and literature. So if you want to read that, uh, you know, we'll have a link in the show notes. Very interesting from a lot of authors. But to turn it around to us, now you guys all write plenty of words. What do you think about symbolism in your, in your work? Does it find its way in or is it a non-starter? Uh, what about, what do, what do you think, Jim? 
Sorry, I was muted. Um, I think this this kid uh, sounds definitely like a new writer overthinking everything. Those questions are very detailed. Um, I, I kind of follow that Stephen King on writing philosophy of that I don't really worry about theme until the second draft. Um, and that's kind of how symbols pop up too. You know, after I write out a draft and then I kind of understand who the characters are and what the thematic impact uh, is on the story. Then as I'm going back through, I'm like, oh, I can use that thing to represent this. Because I don't, first draft, I'm really just worried about getting everything down on paper. And then I can go back and make it mean something later. I mean, don't tell my readers that. You know, I don't have a grand plan from the beginning, but yeah, sometimes you start from the end and then work back. Yeah, I don't think I've ever really focused on theme up front. Um, Like, just like Jim, I'm, well, so I've I've experienced this where I've thought about the theme or I've I've had a character say something where I'm like, wow, that's, that's going to be the theme of this thing. And then I'll, I'll release it. And then probably just because my, my insufferably poor uh, writing style um, and incapable and incompetence as an author um, I'll have readers come back to me and be like, dude, I love the theme of the book. And I'll be like, oh, cool. Yeah, no, what was it? And they were like, they'll say something completely different. Like, I'll be like, Hey, the theme of the book, you know, in my mind is, um, it doesn't really matter, um, how you go about life as long as it ends well. Like maybe a character believes that or something. And then I'll like publish the book and the guy will be like, yeah, dude, I love the theme of like lawnmowers are bad. And I'll be like, Oh, I don't even think there were, did I mention lawnmowers in the book? I didn't even talk about that. So I've never really, and, and this is probably a genre thing too, because I don't think it's a genre expectation in action adventure thrillers. That theme is, is a front and center issue. I've definitely read some that have theme in there and, and, and they're good. Um, but it's not something that I require when I'm reading a book. So I think that might just be part of the the territory for where I'm writing, but yeah, I'm with Jim. Like I, I like the Stephen King advice. Like I'll, I'll, I'll throw it in the second draft if anything. If I ever do a second draft. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was always the person that sucked at finding the theme in English class or any of the, like any of that. Oh, oh yeah, I suppose that does make sense. Now that you mention it. Would never have figured that out on my own though. Mm. But yeah, I think the first draft is definitely for figuring out what the crap you're writing about. And then (laughs) a lot of the time. And then it goes from there. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, so uh, you know that was just a fun, a fun little story for us. Uh, I don't know. I just think it's kind of interesting. You know, I, I don't think I would have even now the the stones to email 150 authors who were published uh, or 150. You, I wouldn't even email you guys right now. So you know, good to that kid. Uh, not worried about rejection and theme and all that stuff. So, um, all right. So it looks like we're rounding up here at about. 30 minutes or so. So I think we're going to uh, start winding it down. Do you guys have anything that you want to add about any of the stories that we've gone through so far today? Any staircase wisdom that you found out from there? No, anything. All right. Very good. So with that being said, we're going to move on to my favorite part of the, of the show every week. After we go through all this shenanigans and this crazy business every week, uh, I'm a little depressed. I'm a little down. And so I need something good that's happened to somebody this week. Who's got something good to tell me about the week? I mean, yeah, it looks like Nick does. Nice. Uh, Nicholas. <laughs> I'm raising my hand over here for anyone who can't see me. Um, here's something kind of kind of cool, kind of promoty, um, self-promoty. Uh, I have launched a podcast with a dear friend of mine, Kevin Tomlinson. 
Uh, we are one episode into it right now with many more uh, recorded and ready to be released. It is called Stuff That's Real That You Didn't Know Was Real But Also Is Cool podcast. Uh, I will drop a link to it there. It's got a sweet intro as well. I had somebody on Fiverr go, stuff that's real. You didn't know it was real, but also it's cool. <laughs> and it's great. And he sounds just like that. So um, go check it out. We basically just talk about the kind of stuff that we research as action adventure writers. So we come across, like, I want to put in the Fermi paradox in one of my books. And so we talk about that on the, on the show. Like, hey, this is what's cool about it. It's also, you know, a real thing that is happening or happened or whatever. So we've done episodes that will be released later on, like, um, the Native American, uh, Geronimo, uh, we've done the Fermi Paradox, we've done um, the world's most painful pain you can experience. Um, that's the first episode, actually. So anyway, um, check that out. Stuff that's real that you didn't know was real, but also is cool. Podcast. Very cool. Very cool. I don't like Fermi because I don't believe that about the aliens. I don't listen to that guy. You know what I mean? You that don't listen to him? Weird. He's full of it, man. He's The aliens haven't contacted us because they're smarter than we are. That's why that, that's the Fermi paradox, right? Like if aliens were real, why haven't they contacted us? They're all yeah, dead. Already. That's why they're all dead. They've driven by, listened to some of our radio transmissions, and been like, eh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. they <laughs> rolled the windows up in the spaceship and kept driving. Lock so. the window, lock the doors. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Very good. Check out Nick's podcast. I'm sure it's great. Uh, if you listen to the show last week, you'll know uh, Kevin Tomlinson, friend of the show, who was here last week. Uh, so. Let's see. Without further ado, let's see. We got nothing else to wrap up. Very good. Well, thanks for joining us again for Author News Weekly. Uh, For all of us here, I'm Ari McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody.